I say no to this project, what's going to happen? So it's rooted in like a fear of something. And so I think that that's definitely a failure from early freelance, but something that I always have to remind myself of, of why am I saying yes? Do I want to do really great work? Is this client aligned with my values? Do I think that my skill set is aligned with what they want? It was really freeing because I just felt so much dread about it for so long. Hello, and welcome to episode 78 of Webflow. I'm your host, Jack, your failure connoisseur, and today my guest is Grace Walker. If you're interested in the Webflow space, you have no doubt already seen her, but I'm going to do an intro anyway. She has over six years of design experience and almost four years of successful freelancing experience. She's launched nearly 100 marketing sites for her clients, and she's a web designer and web developer that besides being known for her clean designs and thoughtfully constructed websites, has an exceptionally pleasing Twitter aesthetic. So go check that out. Grace shares glimpses of her minimalist home, nature on her road biking adventures, and obviously some stunning work too. She's just released her own course called Fast Forward Freelance for freelancers aspiring to have a thriving freelance practice which includes resources, hours of video content, and office hours too. We'll dig into why she made that course and a little bit about it in this episode. So life seems pretty rosy, but is that true? And has it always been as rosy as it seems? The failures that we'll discuss today are saying yes to projects because she felt like she should, being afraid to break break up with clients, and not asking for help when she was over her head. So... Embrace and learn from failure in episode 78 of Webflow with Grace Walker. Grace, welcome to the Webflow podcast. Thank you so much, Jack. I'm so happy to be here. What a glowing introduction. <laughs> I hope I did you justice. I mean, you've got a ton of stuff to look through on both LinkedIn and Twitter. And I was like scrolling, going through your websites. I feel like I know a scary amount about you, but you know what? Maybe that's about to change. We're going to discuss some of your deepest, darkest fears. So what is your relationship with failure, Grace? Oh, gosh. What a question. I honestly don't think about failure too often anymore. I think that a lot of failure is just redirection. I used to be really scared of failure. I think especially when I was younger and even when I started freelancing, I was just petrified of doing something wrong or being perceived as doing something wrong or feeling like I had failed. But working for myself over time, I think that my relationship with failure has really changed. And instead of shrinking when I encounter failure, I find that I'm more so leaning into it and figuring out, well, why did that happen? And why did I do that? And why did they do that? And what can I do better next time? And so now I think my relationship with failure is not really perceiving failure. It's just coming across something that's maybe a roadblock or a redirection. And if it doesn't work out, then I just find another way to do it and move on. You said that so simply. I wish that because I think a lot of people know this stuff. But actually, you know, learning that failure is just an opportunity to learn and to do better next time is really hard to put into practice. So how did you I mean, there's one thing like knowing that information. And there's another thing actually actioning it. Like, how did you learn that hey, I don't need to beat myself up. I'm going to make mistakes and I'm going to learn from it. And then I'm actually going to take action to ensure that doesn't happen again. How did that actually play out for you? I think that oftentimes, at least for me, I have 
gotten over my fear of failure by failing a lot. And by going through different situations and having lots of things happen both to me and to my business and things that I do and things that happen to me and just existing in a very complicated environment that you realize over time that it's really not that big of a deal. (laughs) I listened to a talk last year when I was at a conference and this woman had built like a very successful app. And what she was talking about was essentially like, there are no consequences. You can fail at something. And there's there's truly no consequence. Yes, like maybe something, maybe somebody said something bad about you, or like her example was like maybe you go to jail for a night. And I was like, that's a bit extreme. But but at the end of the day, it's like okay, so what's what's the worst case scenario? Like what's actually going to happen if you fail at this thing? And I think thinking about that worst case scenario and realizing that like oh, that's like actually not that big of a deal, and that's actually something that I can't control at all. So why would I worry about it? And I think that that framing like especially the last year has been really transformative for me to realize that the worst case scenario that I have been thinking about for forever is really not that bad and even if it happens like I'm gonna be okay and I think that that's been really comforting yeah I I always like to think that essentially no one cares about what I do yeah and it sounds like kind of self-deprecating and like Oh, poor you, Jack. You don't need to think like that. But actually, I think it's really helpful because it's then then it's just like, well, I might as well just do it then. Like, I'll just do the thing because ultimately people are so wrapped up in their own lives. Ultimately, it's kind of not that big a deal. You know, it's like they, they're really, if people actually care about what you're doing, then you know you're onto a winner because most of the time, God, life's moving so fast for everyone. And, and you know, they don't actually care how will you do that much i find which is just really liberating which kind of ties into your idea i love that framing and i think that it's completely true like i i go home from events and or from meeting people and i think about gosh i said so many dumb things but then i try to think about oh what did what did what did they say like and i don't remember specifically pretty much what anybody said unless we were having like a very in-depth conversation about something and even then, like, I remember how they made me feel. I remember, like, the takeaway from our conversation. Like, I'm not really thinking about, like, oh, they said something kind of weird. Well, sometimes that happens. And then, like, a week later, nobody remembers it anyway. So, <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. No, it's quite, like, liberating to feel that. I think sometimes we're like, oh, God, I said the wrong thing or I did the thing. But you're kind of just so inwardly focused. And if you think, well, if I'm doing that and other people are doing that, then no one's actually, like... You know, if you're if you're too fear fearful to actually say the thing or do whatever the thing is that you want to say or do, then you're kind of holding yourself back. When ultimately, like the consequences aren't that bad, and probably no one's going to remember anyway. So yeah, I love that framing. Pretty much. And you are someone that you know also takes action when this comes into client work and, and mistakes. You really own your mistakes, which I love. And you know you'll talk publicly about things that have gone wrong. You'll also then implement those changes in the SOPs that you do. And actually, actually, that was one of the first times I saw you speak. You were talking about, I can't remember which community was hosting this, maybe No Code North. But anyway, you were talking about your SOPs and running through how you basically guide a client through the client process. I remember thinking, how the hell did she learn all this? But as we said in the intro, I mean, you've been doing design for six years and then you've been freelancing for almost four years. You've done almost a hundred client projects. You've done this process 
almost a hundred times. It's probably a, a mountain of failures and mistakes and bumps in the road along the way to actually get to a place where it's like, well, obviously here's my SOP, step one, step two, step three. And it's like, actually that has taken so many mistakes and failures along the way to get there. If I, if I understood that correctly. Yeah, I think so. And I think like, as I'm going through those failures, I guess, like I'm not really perceiving them as failures, especially during projects. It's kind of like, oh, well, that didn't work. Or like, I tried something new and the client didn't really like it. Like, let's let's go back to the way it was before or adjust. And so I think that really all of it is going through a process with a client. You're going to come across thousands of decisions that need to be made, thousands of interactions. And how can you optimize those and that really only becomes clear after a certain volume of work like yes you can learn from people online yes you can like take a course or or whatever but i think that there's a lot of practical learning that only happens when you do a certain volume of work because you can actually see those things happening for yourself and pick out how they relate to your personality and how you are interacting with them and how you feel about them and how the clients do and, and all of that. So I think that like, yeah, a lot of that optimization has happened both from like external learning and listening to a lot of people talk about their failures, but also just like doing a lot of work. I love that answer. And I think that's really refreshing to hear as someone that's just created their own course to be like, look, there's there's a limit to what you can, you know, learn versus what you can learn by doing. You know, of course, it's important to, you know, understand break through your glass ceiling which you might do from from you know studying with someone like you or another course creator in the webflow space but actually like doing the reps doing you know multiple client projects working out what is the kind of the best process or practices or guiding their client through design versus development or whatever it is actually doing the reps is so so important and that's really refreshing to hear i noticed on your website for the fast forward freelance course you actually, in the, the FAQs, the top question is, will this course get me more clients? And you're like, there is no secret source or magic plan to guarantee you're always booked. I'm like, thank God, because the amount of courses are, that are like, you know what? If you come on my course, I promise within, you know, however many days you're going to get X amount of clients. And they are generally American. So I'm sorry if American listeners are like, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's quite like brash and over the top, but... I just think that's important to to highlight, which you clearly also realize is is important for for you as well. Hey guys, just jumping in here to say that this episode is sponsored by Bonsai. Now, Bonsai is the one platform to streamline your entire business. And I do think that this phrase, you know, I've seen companies say these kind of we do everything phrases, but I genuinely do think Bonsai is, as it says on the tin, you know, it does streamline your business in a crazy way. You can do contracts, you can do invoices, you can do proposals, you can do time tracking, like you can do all of this really useful stuff in Bonsai. And before I was using Bonsai, I was actually sending out proposals and contracts using Notion. And I didn't really know what I was doing. And obviously, you can't really do like signatures very easily in 
that platform and things like that, just because Notion's really not used for that. Like it's not really meant for that type of thing. And let's just say I had one project which was a shitstorm and I wish I had some kind of contract in place. And one of the things that I like most about Bonsai is that it's got loads and loads of contract templates for all sorts of things, for partnerships with Webflow stuff to, you know, freelance client work to retainers to whatever. So I do really recommend checking it out. Click the link in the show notes below if you're interested. That is Bonsai. Okay, back to the episode. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that, and this is what I talk about a lot in the course as well, is that there are there are many ways for you to succeed as an independent, as a freelancer. And the way that I've done things might not be exactly the way that one of the students of the course is going to do things. But I think having more information is never going to be a bad thing. Like seeing how other people have succeeded and then applying that to your own journey, whether that fits your personality or your workflow or your style or whatever is really important. And I don't, yeah, like I see a lot of courses and that's why I wrote that FAQ specifically was because there are a lot of false promises, I think, online of like, take my course and I'll tell you how to like always be consistently booked or your income to six figures. And it's like, that's all really great to say. Like, it's very catchy. But what are you actually going to do that's going to impact that person and empower them to do that for themselves? Because at the end of the day, like, you can give someone information, but they have to apply it themselves. So there's not like, there's no guarantee in that. (laughs) It's like, you can tell someone all the information, but it's up to that. I think that that's really kind of the core of fast forward freelance is that I want to empower people to feel like they can build a business for themselves, that they are a talented designer and that they have so much potential and really just recognizing that because it's, it's really on them. Like it's, no one else is going to build your business for you and no one else is going to find you clients or leads or increase your income. But if you know what's possible, you can feel a lot more empowered in your own will to do that. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And it links back to what we were saying at the start is that, you know, no one cares. So you need to care. No one cares. Like you, you, <laughs> need, you need to actually make, make your life whatever you want it to be. But, you know, by realizing what is possible, a little bit of elbow grease and some sage advice, then you know, you may well may well get that. But there's going to be bumps along the way, which is totally natural. Can I change gears here and ask you a little bit about the phrasing on your website? Because I think this is fascinating. So I want to talk about your personal website now. You say you're a web designer and web flow developer. And one thing that I think is kind of interesting in the web flow space is that a lot of people say I'm a web flower. And having worked, you know, collaborated on different projects with different people, I realized that that phrasing is maybe slightly problematic just because there's people that are far more design orientated rather than more traditional developers and there's people that are maybe more traditional developers that are coming into the webflow space and i think that's happening more and more as there's more and more features that are allowing enterprise clients and yeah more flexibility with the platform but can you talk to me about like how you think of being a webflower and and kind of where you lean towards in terms of design or development and whether you think that matters at all maybe yeah i think that webflow is a tool and so i am very cautious to not fully align myself with like that tool becoming my identity yes i am a webflow developer yes my services are very tailored to that platform but i'm a designer first and foremost and i'm not 
a development, if that makes sense. So I think the way that I think about this is that I, my identity, the way that I like to frame myself is I'm a designer. I also build websites and Webflow is the tool that I use to do that. I'm very specific, I think, in all of my marketing and my website to say that I'm a Webflow developer because, yes, I think it's good for SEO and this is the tool that I use and I love Webflow so much. But at the end of the day, like I'm not a proper developer. I don't code. I, whenever I come across things that are like more complicated in, in development, like I'm asking for help on those because I literally can't build them myself. I probably could if I did all my effort, but <laughs> I like frankly don't want to because I am a designer. And so I think that being very specific about what my skills are helps clients better understand who I am and is also just like the specificity of that is the secret sauce, I think, of saying I'm a web designer and Webflow developer that immediately tells someone like, yes, she designs websites. Yes, she also goes them using Webflow. And so I think that because I also have a really strong design background, I don't want to like bundle all of that up together into just calling myself a Webflower because like, yes, I am. But like, I feel like I'm more than that. And Webflower can mean so many different things. Like, do you build on Webflow? Are you like a designer and builder? Do you just really like Webflow? Like, where are you? So I think that especially when talking to clients, being very specific about the skill set is just a power and not a downfall at all. I love that answer. Okay. Question. Did you think of all this stuff before you're talking or is it just like loads of loads of interviews and stuff? Because you're, you're very, very succinct while making really interesting points. Oh, thank you. No, I, I wrote a little bit of an answer for what's my relationship with failure, but the rest of those were just chatting. <laughs> we're just freestyling here. Um, okay, We're great. just freestyling. I don't know. I talk a lot and I, I think a lot of things. I take a lot of notes and I am like constantly reflecting on how I can be better at my business and just as a person. So there's a lot of just thought about it a lot. <laughs> Fascinating. Okay. Well, yeah, that's a bit of a meta question outside of the podcast, but I think that's really interesting. Okay. So just want to double click on a lot of different stuff you said. So if you are seen as a generalist, you might not be seen as so valuable to clients. It sounds like you've been really, really intentional about saying, I am a designer that develops websites on Webflow. So instead of being like, I'm a Webflower, which could be design and dev, like you said, as in it could be perceived in a number of different ways, like I can hard code and I'm going to do that and I do a little bit of Webflow or I'm just coming into using Webflow and I'm a fan. Like there's plenty of different in-betweens, but it's it's really powerful that you've kind of honed in on the fact that you are, your your design is the thing that really is is differentiating you in the Webflow space because a lot of people in the Webflow space might not have actually come from a design background at all. You can develop websites on Webflow. And it's important to mention as well that you have intentionally said look i probably could work this out with enough you know googling and youtube watching and stuff but i but i ask you actively choose not to necessarily upskill yourself in all sorts of different areas which may be generalist even though that you're a curious person and stuff you're just like you know what this isn't my bag this isn't what i want to be focusing on my higher leverage thing is design and that's where I really want to focus. And I just think for anyone that's listening who's just got an H1 on their website saying, I'm a Webflower, just 
I don't know. I think it's worth just exploring that a little bit more and working out what you're truly interested in and what you're really, really wanting to be known for in the Webflow space. Hey guys, just jumping in here to say that Webflow of the week is Tim Daff. He is someone who's always supporting. I always see his name pop up. He wears this little yellow coat. It's on his uh, Twitter, and I just see it the whole time. Just Tim with his little yellow coat. But Tim is a big man wearing that little yellow coat in the community. He's always sharing nice things, and he's super, super supportive of Webflow. So I appreciate you, Tim. He says, awesome. Can't wait to listen to this. That's in reference to this episode that you're listening to now with Keegan Leary. So thanks, Tim. By the way, the little yellow coat, just to be clear, I don't know how tall Tim is. This isn't about a height thing. This is just me looking at his tiny little, you know, favicon icon on Twitter. And I just see this yellow coat, which looks little. Okay, I'm going to stop now. Back to the episode. Yeah, I don't remember where I read this advice, but I saw someone talking about like years ago that oftentimes when people are thinking about, oh, what kind of skills should I develop? They they think about the things that they're not very good at, and then they want to double down on those and get better at them. Whereas this person was saying, you should gravitate towards the things that are easy for you and go hard on those because what's easy for you is not easy for everyone else. And so if you can lean into what you are already enjoying and you're already good at it, even better at that, you're going to build yourself a skill set that is enviable and very, very valuable. And I think that over time, like when I first started freelancing, I was offering branding services. I was doing SEO. I was doing web design, web flow development, like kind of everything because I thought that that's what I had to do. But as I continued to freelance more and more, I came across folks like Jessica Strelioff and Danielle Roy, who I, you had on the podcast, who were just wildly talented at their disciplines, like at copywriting and brand positioning and just visual design in general with Jess. And I think that working with brand partners in particular had really opened up my eyes to the possibility that like, hey, like I don't need to be good at everything. Like I can be really good at like two things and I can work with people who are really good at their things. And then overall, the project becomes something that is many multiples what each of us could have done on our own. But you only get to that point if you let go of the things that you're not good at. But I think that that like letting go of brand work for me, because I could do it. And I had done it for three years at the studio that I was working at in like varying degrees of success. And I did like logo design and brand identities when I first started freelancing. But I think over time, I was just like, I don't enjoy this and I don't want to keep doing it. And like going back to that advice of like, what's easy for me? Like, what's easy for me is web design. Like, I love working in Webflow. I love designing websites. I can do that really, really well. And I can work with people who are really good. Love that answer. Okay, great. If you are a generalist that's listening to this, or you're maybe in the Webflow space, and you're feeling so overwhelmed because you're like, I need to learn spline tool. You know, I want to get into 3D and then... I'm like, wait, hold on. I need to get really, really good at Figma. And then you're like, wait, I need locos and color palettes. And let me get into the Adobe suite and start focusing on that. And you're trying to edit photos. And you're using all these different AI tools for copywriting. And you're just like, oh, I'm so overwhelmed. How the hell does everyone do this? Everyone doesn't do everything. That's the answer. Yeah. 
And that is... And I think it's okay to, like, have a period where you do everything to, like, figure out what you like and what you're good at and what's easy for you. But recognizing that once it comes and and, and you're at a point, you're like, okay, I don't want to keep just learning everything in perpetuity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm to double down on something. I feel like I've been, like, in about an eight-year internship since my 20th birthday when I was like or 20s when I found Webflow and then I was just like trying to do everything and I also think that's part of the reason why I haven't necessarily got to maybe where I want to be at 28. Are you ready to dive into your failures? Yes let's do it. I'm excited let's go. So tell me about failure number one saying yes to projects because you felt like you should. Yes, this was, I think, a failure that has been fairly constant throughout my entire time of freelancing. And it's something that I actively work on all the time. And I think this like saying yes to projects because I feel like I should is really what it comes down to is taking on too much work when I'm freelancing, either because of the relationship with the client that I have or because finances are really beneficial or because it's a referral from someone that I really respect, but I'm not excited about the work itself. And so I think that this happened a lot more in early freelance, but sometimes it does still happen now where like I'm tempted to say yes to things that I shouldn't because of those things. And I think what this comes down to is like really being afraid of someone thinking poorly of and saying yes to something because like, oh, but if I don't say yes to this, what are they going to think of me? They're never going to refer work to me again. What if they tell their network that I'm not like a good designer or like whatever? And I realized over time that I think a lot of me saying yes to those projects because I felt like I should was really just like a personal fear. And again, like going back to what we talked about, like I think that thinking about it and realizing like, okay, what's the worst case scenario here? If I say no to this project, what's going to happen? And like, yes, maybe that client never refers work to me again. Maybe they don't want to work with me on this project or, or something else. Or maybe I say, no, hey, sorry, I'm too busy for this. Here's some other referrals. They think, oh, Grace is really helpful. And I'm so happy that she's busy. And so I think that like trying to reframe that for myself of like, if I say no to this, like what's actually going to happen was really freeing because I just felt so much dread about it for so long. Like said yes to a lot of things that I either didn't have time for and then was overbooked and the work suffered or it was a big name, like a big corporate name that I was like, oh, that's going to look so good on my portfolio. But then I never ended up putting it in my portfolio. <laughs> and like just kind of projects like that where there was some incentive for me to say yes to something, but it wasn't rooted in I want to do really great work. It was rooted in like, a fear of something. And so I think that that's like definitely a failure from early freelance, but something that I always like continually have to remind myself of, of like, why am I saying yes to this? Do I want to do really great work? Is this client aligned with my values? Do I think that my skill set is aligned with what they want? And those are the reasons to say, not because you are worried of what someone's going to think of you if you say no. Yeah. Like whose life are you living? It's kind of, it seems to be like a summary, right? Like of what what am I doing this from? Am I doing this from a place of fear? Like, am I worried about other people's expectations on me and what, what the like the repercussions are going to be? What do you think it is about the power of no? So many people on this podcast have come on and said, yeah, I, I'm, you know, I'm doing things for the wrong reasons or, you know, I work with 
friend or family member and I wish I didn't or you know it seems to be like people don't want to say no in the workflow space why is that I think it's probably an apprehension to say no just in life in general of worrying that if I say no to this thing what's going to happen of worried about being of, of missing out on opportunities and things like that and I think part of it is probably how we're socialized especially like me as a woman as a girl being told like to like not ever get in the way and like are you like causing problems for people like trying to and like in in many different ways all of the time basically saying like make yourself small and be and I think that that sticks with you <laughs> over time and you fall into patterns as an adult where you say yes to things because it's the easiest option or because it's the safe option or because no one's going to get upset and that's not a good reason <laughs> to say yes to things but you don't realize that until you like reflect on it yourself and I think that a lot of reasons why I at least felt a lot of pressure to say yes to things is because you like want to you want everyone to have a positive image of you and you're scared of what they're going to think if they don't. But really, like, they're not they're not going to think that. <laughs> Maybe they will, but, like, that's not my problem. That's someone else's problem with how they think. Not even problem. It's just their framework. So, yeah, I think that that's kind of, like, how I like to think of it. That's really fascinating. Okay, so you're talking about maybe, like, there's a microaggression impact of, like, you know, when I was talking to my housemate who said that, she was always described as she kind of had like fits of anger. And it's really interesting the phraseology that people use when like if a man, you know, acted out of anger, they wouldn't be described in the in the same way. That framing wouldn't be the same at all. And how that from a young age has, you know, impacts how people see themselves and how women see themselves versus how men see themselves. And I can imagine that would also play out in in the design space where there's quite a lot of, how do I phrase this? People with loud opinions that are very often male, I've noticed. No woman has ever asked to come on the podcast, for example. But you should see the amount of DMs I get being like, hey, I've got an interesting story to tell. Can I come on the podcast? And you're like, that's fascinating that no woman has ever done that versus, I don't know how many how many men have done that. So yeah, I can imagine that plays a yeah. big part. I think that, and I mean, I can't speak for all women, but at least for myself, I am, I have like, I think in my life been very scared to show up to things and be seen trying. And that has resulted in me being overprepared for pretty much everything that I've ever done. It's because I don't want, and I'm getting better at this, obviously, because I think that like you can't, you can't get good at something until you've been bad at something. But are you willing to be seen being bad at something? And I think that I'm getting more and more comfortable with that, but historically have been wildly uncomfortable with, with being seen as being bad at something. That's been, that showed up in like so many different ways. Like when I started racing my bike, like I won my very first crit race. I left the field because I was so wildly overprepared to be there that I was just like, I was so scared of like what was going to happen if I was bad at it that I was like, I went into it way, way, way. A lot of my client work a lot of my just like design skills in general. Like I don't want to show up with a 50% effort. I want to show up with a hundred percent effort all the time. And I think that a lot of women are like that. They don't want to like be seen as like being bad at something. They want to like be confident and be put together and 
be this like perfect version of themselves, which is like really hard to do <laughs> all the time. Yeah, especially with societal pressure to look a certain way to fit into whatever yeah trends there are for you know the hairstyle or whatever and like the amount of male bosses i've had which will just turn up to meetings and be like sorry i haven't prepared anything what do you what do you want to should we like how should we do that and whenever i've had female bosses they are generally a lot more prepared interestingly so i can definitely see how that could could play out but i think whether someone's a listener who's who's a man or a woman in in the webflow space i definitely think that learning the power of no is so important. It circles back to what you were saying about niching or at least understanding what you want to be known for and what you need to say no to in order to let other people who are better at you at the thing do the thing. Whether that's like you're a designer and you're like complex development, I'm going to give that to somebody. Learning that how to say no there, learning how to say no to clients that don't fit those green flags that you've set for yourself over time as you realize what those green flags are and listening to the red you know the red flags and saying no and then also when you're talking about you know partnering with other collaborators and stuff if you have a meeting and you're like you know what something's not right like something i can't even discern what that thing is but i need to listen to it again learning the power of no it it's I think we're taught just not to say no in school and stuff and you're just meant to like obey and follow. And I think as a freelancer, it's so important just to learn the power of no. So yeah, wanted to highlight yeah. that there. Yeah, I'll say one more thing about it because I think about this metaphor often and I think I've talked about it in my talk for Webflow Comp Small on purpose, but I feel like saying no is kind of like you're in a, you're in a ship and if you don't have any sales up you're just kind of like going where the current takes you and you're not really having any direction and like of course you're not going to get to a destination because you're not putting any up to like help you get there so saying no is kind of like raising your sales picking a destination and saying i'm going here and i'm going to like use all of my power and effort to get to that spot and not just like go with whatever wherever the wind takes me like you want to be very intentional about what you're doing and where you want to go and what your goals are Otherwise, you can float into like a future that you didn't plan for yourself and you don't want. Yeah, literally. If you're like, where do you want to go on holiday? I don't know. Let's see. You're probably not going to go anywhere. So <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And it again, this is obvious, but so many people don't actually do this stuff. And it's so, I found it to be profoundly true. Like if you know where you're going, then you're going to take action to get there, whether you want to call that visualization or anything else. I, I I just think it's so important because so many Webflowers I find they're kind of doing a bit of everything. And I think that is holding them back, even though it might seem like the opposite. Like they're busy without yeah. kind of moving in the way that they feel and like I think they should. A lot of, and I think a lot of that, like I was trying to think of this point earlier when we were talking about saying yes to products because you feel like you should. I think that a lot of that also comes out of not knowing what you want and not having put time and reflection into where do you actually want to go? What is the work that you want to be? Because if you haven't done that reflection for yourself to know what is the ideal state and been specific about that, it's really easy to just like say yes to things because they sound cool, but like, are they going to contribute to this end state that you want to be at? Yes or no. If you don't actually know what you want and who you are, like, how are you supposed to do that? And not saying like, I know who I am and like, the most detailed form but 
I think that I do put a lot of time and effort into thinking about like, what does my ideal like? And is this going to contribute to that? Hey guys, just jumping in here to say thanks to everyone for asking me questions for Vlad's episode, which was episode 100. I went to San Francisco last week, had a great time there. The Webflow team were lush, but thank you so much for putting all those questions in for me. I got some of them in. I'm going to come clean, guys. I didn't get all of them in. So I'm sorry if I, you know, didn't ask one of your questions. Had a little bit of a short time slot with Vlad because obviously he's a busy man. A lot of people want to chat to him. A lot of people want to ask him questions, but I got some of them in. So thank you for sending all of those across. I really, really appreciate it. And hopefully you guys enjoy episode 100. I know that's that's, that's in a few weeks time because we're only at 92 when you're listening to this, but it's coming. It's coming. Okay, back to the episode. does my ideal state look like and what is going to contribute to that killer questions if you're listening write these down maybe have a listen or think about this stuff after this podcast episode okay tell me about failure number two being afraid to break up with clients yeah i think that this is often or not often, I think that this is really rooted in that same fear as the first failure of saying yes to projects because I feel like I should. I This doesn't happen often, but occasionally I work with clients and either it's just like value aligned or we get to a point where like it's just not working and for many reasons, both on my side and the client side. And I try to be really honest with myself too if something isn't working out because it's my fault or because of like a way that I'm operating. Because I think online, there's like often a lot of discourse around like, oh, this client's so annoying or like, oh, they, they don't understand what I'm trying to do. But it's like, at the end of the day, you're working with someone for someone to help them reach their goals. And if something isn't working out, I think that the first place that you should look is yourself to say like, okay, well, what have I done to like lead to this point? Because no one's perfect. <laughs> and oftentimes, like a lot of like sticky situations that I find myself in, I've contributed to those. And I need to be honest with myself about that if I want to get better and kind of like grow as a designer and as a person. But being afraid to break up with clients, I think, again, like really rooted in that failure of like or fear of what are people going to think about me if I stop working with them or if I don't want to continue doing this. And I think what has happened in the few instances where this has happened have just been like long-term relationships with clients where like, yes, the work was good and yes, it was fine. And yes, I could do it. But I just, every single time that I was working on it, I felt stressed. I felt like it was contributing to overwhelm, whether or not the work was complicated itself. This happened a couple years ago when I was working with a client and they had a lot of change on their team. Like their marketing director had gone out and someone else had come in. And it was just like, there was a lot of like movement on the client side that felt tumultuous. And I was trying to do the work, but it was just really stressful trying to like keep up with like all of these different changes. And I was realizing that it was just not like I didn't feel good about it. Like there was something about it. Like it was just a lot of little things that just like made me feel really uneasy. Whenever this client messaged me or asked me to do something, it just was like, oh, man. 
And I don't want to feel like that (laughs) because it's my business. And so my first course of action in that was like, okay, well, why am I feeling like this? And is there something that I can do with the work to like frame it to the client and move to a better spot where like we both feel good about it? But at the end of the day, I think what I had decided was like, I just don't want to continue doing this. It's not the work that I want to do. It's taking my time away from other things. And I was so afraid of what they were going to say. But it was fine. (laughs) I basically just said, you know, like my priorities have changed. This isn't the work that I want to keep doing. I can recommend some other folks that you work that you should like look into working with. But like after this month, I'm not going to be continuing to do. And it was so scary. It was the first time that I had like very intentionally said, you know what, this isn't for me. And it was so empowering. And I've done it a few times since both for like, just like availability or feeling overwhelmed or taking on too much stuff. And like, I I don't take that lightly because I know that I am a client's partner and I want to support them. And I never want to go into a relationship with the intention of only being there for the short term. Like I want to be someone that my clients can lead on. But when I'm feeling that alignment is like disconnected or it's just really stressful to me, like I'm my own boss. I I have to be my own manager. I'm not going to like have the guts to actually do it and like make hard decisions for myself. Then I'm just going to like crumble into a puddle of <laughs> being overwhelmed. So it's like it's a, it's a difficult thing. But I think through time, I've learned that uh, it's OK. And it's just business. Yes, yes. Yes. Ah, okay. So I want to focus in on something that you said that I thought was really well done. When you actually kind of gave us that little anecdote where you were breaking up with the client, you didn't just say, all right, I'm out and then ghost them. You know, you had built a relationship and you wanted to maintain a good relationship while also breaking up. Right. And what you said was, if I've, if I've heard you correctly, I can recommend someone else and that the end of this month is when I'm stopping. It's not like bang them out. You know, you're giving them, you're making sure that you are maintaining that bridge that you've built with them to ensure that they also get what they want. And it might not be done with you, but you are ensuring that they can actually achieve the goals that they set out to achieve, which I think is so important because a lot of the time I see people bitching about their clients on Twitter. One, you know, they're your clients. So don't just go and, you know, scream at the design community on Twitter, like go and deal with the problem and talk, have those difficult conversations, because the earlier you can solve whatever that pain point is, you know, the less difficult that difficult conversation is going to be, in my opinion. But also make sure that you maintain that relationship, because ultimately, we are in a relationship based industry, as you say, you know, you are thinking about referrals, you are thinking about ensuring that it's a partnership rather than just, you know, an interaction. It's it's something that has long-term consequences. When you start working with someone, it's not that one project. You've also got to think, okay, how does this play out wider for my career as a freelancer? So just think that's really worth highlighting because it doesn't mean breaking up like by text and being like, I'm out, you know, your stuff's all outside yeah. the front. You know, it's not that type of a breakup. It's Let's be mature, adult. Here's what I want. Here's what you want. Let's come to an agreement to make sure that that happens, even though you are breaking up with them. Yeah. And I think that, like, in all honesty, there's been times when I've broken up with clients where I don't feel great about it. And I feel like maybe I should have done more or maybe I should have left them in a better spot or 
should have put in more effort to like find them someone to replace me. And so I think that those things weigh really heavy on me. And I am very conscious of the fact that it's really important how I leave a client. And I think that all of my biggest regrets are <laughs> around like not leaving clients in a good spot. And I try to do my best to make sure that doesn't happen but sometimes it does just with like being too busy or taking on too many things or like for various reasons and it's hard so I'm not going to say like I'm perfect I leave every single relationship in the best possible circumstances because like sometimes I don't sometimes I miss things sometimes I'm not like the most responsive or sometimes I'm not sending referrals because it's just too difficult <laughs> to like find someone absolutely perfect for them and like vet them because that's work too so I'm by no means perfect but I think that I always try to leave situations knowing that I have to be proud with how I've handled something and when I look back on it like the regrets that I have are going to be around how I acted not around how the client acted so I'm in control of me and that's all I can do and like I try to do my best it's not always yeah that, but I can try that makes sense yeah and and thanks for sharing that because I think yeah, it, it it's it's very easy to say, you know, try and maintain that relationship. But ultimately, you know, by by virtue of saying, look, I, I, I can't facilitate the work that you wanted me to, to do. It is just an awkward scenario. And, you know, the other person might react quite volatile. And you can only manage yourself as, as best you can and how you think is appropriate to act with the information that you have at the time. Tell me about... Failure number three, not asking for help when you were over your head. Yes, I think that this was something that also took quite a long time to learn. And again, I think is rooted in a fear of being perceived as not competent. When I've been in projects and I've come across challenges or scenarios that I feel like are out of my skill set. And instead of saying, hey, like, I don't, I can't do this thing that you're asking me to do. Let me go find someone to help. I've not admitted that. And I've just said, oh, I'll learn how to do that. And sometimes that works out. And I talk about that a lot in my course of like, it's, you should constantly be adding things to your projects that are slightly outside of your skill set so that you're forcing yourself to learn. I think that that's a great way to push yourself forward. But you can only do that so much to a point where, it's actually working. <laughs> and so I think that there was a lot of times when I probably should have asked for help and I didn't. And as soon as I started doing this and recognizing that, hey, there's a scenario in this project that I'm not great at, it's not working, I need help. Actually going and finding that help and implementing it makes the work better. The client's happier. I'm less stressed. Like so many good things happen when you admit to yourself, hey, I can't do this thing. <laughs> Let me go find someone who can. And I think that that's been really powerful for me and like a powerful like framework switch. I could think of a couple times when this happened specifically. I did a project a couple years ago. It was a brand refresh design and development project. And I had agreed to do a logo design. I have historically not been very good at logo design. I still like I just did a logo design a couple months ago. And like because I was kind of missing brand work. And I was like, oh, maybe I should do brand work again. And I tried doing it. And I was like, I don't need to do this again. But this project a couple of years ago, I was working with a client and she was just like not satisfied with the logos that I had created. And I kind of knew that they weren't great too. And we had gone back and forth on them for a few weeks to the point where like the web design was done. Like the web design was done. We were like getting into building the site, but like the logo was still not nailed down. And like 
that's not a good situation to be in. That's not how I want the process to go. And so what I ended up doing was actually reaching out to a friend who is a very talented logo designer and brought them into the project. And at first I was kind of like, oh man, like it was a pit in my stomach. And I thought, gosh, I'm like going to have to pay them out of this small project budget because I can't really go back to the client and say, hey, I didn't do this thing very well, so I need more money from you. So I took it out of the project budget that I already had and I subcontracted my friend to do the logo. Like the client knew about it. But it ended up being so much better and she loved it. And she was like, yes, this is exactly what I wanted. And the work was better and I left the relationship better. And it just was like, everyone was happier all around. And so I think in that experience, I realized that like, it's okay to source things out that I'm not great at. And I've continued to do that with like, Webflow sliders are something that I hate building. I'm because they involve custom code all the time and I'm just not very good at them and I have fiddled with them for hours and whatever so like I hire someone to help me with those custom code support I've been really lucky to work with like Corey Moen on a couple projects we're doing another one coming up in a couple months because there's custom code pieces that I'm just not very good at and frankly have no idea how to approach and if I can have someone on my side who's an expert who's going to knock that out of the park wow the work's going to be better like of course I want that but so like switching that framework in my mind from like, oh, this is a personal failure if I am bad at something to be like, it's actually a point of strength, I think, to show your client that you recognize what areas are not your strengths and that you can supplement them and that you have the network to supplement them, I think is a really powerful. Yeah. Awesome. So true. And, you know, who wouldn't want Corey on a project with you? I mean, he's just, his smile alone <laughs> is worth paying for. Yes. So I want to ask you something at the start of when you were talking about upskilling and pushing yourself every project a little bit beyond your comfort zone so that you do things that are kind of you know a little bit out of reach but you you keep continuously learning what you're saying is you should keep continuously learning in whatever area you want to you know be known for in like if you're doing design and development obviously focusing in on you know learning and supplementing your skill sets there but what you're not saying is well if you want to you know, learn something new, learn something completely like you're not just learning like spline just because you're like, oh, maybe I'd learn spline because, you know, why not? Like, this is something I've never done before, but I maybe could to add it to my project. Like, that's not really in your wheelhouse of skills. So if I understood that correctly, like you're saying get a bit better at whatever the thing is that you're currently like working on and focus in on that still, but make sure that you are kind of always curious and moving higher in that particular skill set. Yeah, I think chasing what you're interested in. So whether that's like Webflow development or design or whatever that is, like, yes, if there's something in a Webflow site that I want to learn how to build, but I don't know how to build it yet, maybe I incorporate that into a design of a project and I have to figure it out myself. But if a client asks me, hey, can you set up like a Google ad campaign for me? It's like, yeah, I could probably learn how to do that, but I'm not going to. Like, I don't, I don't want to do that. Like, that's not in my interest. I don't want to learn how to do that. It's not a skill that I need to have. And so like kind of differentiating those in your mind of like, okay, is this, is this something that's going to push me to be better at my core skill set? Or is this something that's going to distract um, from that? Great. Okay. I'm glad we just highlighted that because if someone's listening, they might be a little bit confused because you're like, oh, you're pushing your skill sets, but it's in that particular, you know, skill set that you want to be known for. That's great. So when you are out of your depth, now you hire people. And you've obviously built that network partly through your amazing Twitter, 
which we've spoken a little bit about in the intro, you are someone that seems to be very intentional about how they market themselves. I see you as one of the best marketers in the Webflow space. And I'm not sure how you, how do you feel about hearing that? Are you like, mm? that's really interesting. And I get this kind of question in a lot of ways, a lot of like, how do you approach Twitter? And the reality is that I don't think about it. <laughs> I So it's very flattering to hear that you think that I'm a great marketer. And perhaps that's just like, a personality trait that I have but like quite frankly like I I I think about my Twitter as a way to make myself very visible for my work so I like approach it in a way almost as like a co-worker and kind of like as a promo little soapbox of like I'm here this is what I'm doing and but like on that co-worker front as well like I work by myself. I work at home. I'm like in my office by myself for the most of the day. And so really just like treating Twitter like a coworker or like an office that I can like go around and socialize and see what other people are doing is like a very personally fulfilling thing for me. Sometimes a stressful thing, but more often than not, it's... That's fascinating. Okay. I'm glad that you said that it's not something that you're doing like strategically. Because when I, when I say that I think you're a good marketer, just to be clear what I'm trying to say, I see marketing as if you provide value to someone in the form of entertainment or might be education or whatever that value i think good marketing captures people's attentions and i think that's the reason why they do that is because there's some kind of value there and how i look at how you post and how you engage with people it feels very much like you're going around a co-working space talking to people like, oh yeah, I'm working on this right now. Do you want to get a coffee in a bit? I'm actually going to cycle, go for a bike ride, but then back, like we can have a coffee and there's like beautiful light. Oh, I'll just take a picture of like, you know, us having a coffee or like, it feels like that, but you are, you know, obviously showing a lot of your work as well. And, and I understand that there is kind of a incentive to get work from Twitter potentially by just sharing what you're doing, like this soapbox idea that you talked about, but it does feel very like familiar as well it's not like here's a case study this is for startups in the clients you know like that um, you're not like aiming the content that you're making or whatever however you want to phrase it at a particular person it's just like here's my life you know get involved if you want don't get involved if you don't it's totally cool type thing yeah i think it comes down to a lot of the content that i consume myself i feel like the content that I resonate the most with and like the like influencers for for better or for worse that term that I really like vibe with are people that I feel like are my friends online. And like I that parasocial relationship is really a strange thing to have in your life if you really think about it for any extended period of time. But like I have parasocial relationships with all kinds of like people that I follow online and I'm like, oh yeah, my friend said that. And it's like, that's not my friend. Girl, she doesn't even know me. But like, I think they're my friend because I see them online all the time. And so I think like those are the kind of people that I love to follow and that I really uh, like to engage with online. And so I don't know that it's like a conscious decision of like, I'm going to make myself seem like that. It's more so just like, that's what I resonated with and that's how I want to show up. By the beard of Zeus, that was a corker of an episode. Thanks so much to Grace for coming on the podcast, and thanks so much to you lot for listening. Now, this episode, we really covered a lot, but what I want to focus on is the power of saying no. Now, you might have learned that the customer is always right. If you've worked in hospitality, 
you know that's a bigger lie than you should always tell the truth. No, sorry, you should always tell the truth. But this whole the customer is always right thing is is not is not right in my opinion. As Grace explains, sometimes you need to learn to say no. No to things that are maybe outside of your wheelhouse. No to clients that behave badly. No to red flags that maybe you would have ignored in the past. If you continually contort your actions to fit other people's expectations, or not even their expectations, your perception of their expectations, you will soon feel resentment, and you might need to reclaim what you want for you and you alone. If you're someone who doesn't say no enough, I dare you to say no this week. You might feel empowered and emboldened. You are the captain of your ship, but only when you choose to be. Episode seventy-nine. We've got John D. Saunders. What is good, y'all? John D. Saunders here. You know the vibes. That was terrible. I won't ever do that again. Have a great week, web players.